May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I'm very fortunate to know a number of doctors because I went to university with them and they remained friends for many years. I've also been to the doctor and I've visited lots of people who are under the doctor. I've also brought a great sympathy for the medical profession because until the advent of antibiotics and x-rays and latterly in fact MRI scans, everybody just accepted there were all kinds of diseases that people caught and the doctors were powerless to cure. You go to the doctor and he or she would do their best. If you require it, they would give you something for the pain or the cough or whatever. And those with a good, with a good bedside manner would also offer sympathy, wisdom and encouragement. And we felt the better for the experience because we sat and just listened. And occasionally, people who went got better. Often, though, it was just the illness running its course. Today, we complain when we go to the doctor if we have to wait for an appointment. And we complain because we believe that when we get to see the doctor, that he or she will make us better. As these days, they normally do. Such is the wonder of modern medicine. But when we don't get better, as medicine can still be more of an art than a science, despite all the amazing advances, we knock the doctors off the high pedestal we place them on and declare them, well, quacks. Yet doctors are neither gods nor hardly devils. So though we may deify them, or even demonize them, depending on our experience of them, they are, like us, men and women, people, with faults and with failings and with limitations. Paul and Barnabas are in the room. Paul's preaching. And as he's preaching, he notices this lame man depicted there in that window above Jeff's head, lying on the ground. And following the impulse of the Holy Spirit, he calls out to him, Stand on your feet. The man we're told jumped up and began to walk. Now today, we shy away from miracles because, well, we're scientific and we're modern. And we're particularly wary of miracles of healing because we're all too aware of so many charlatans in this world who claim all sorts of gifts but actually have none. And healing is what doctors now do and they do it very, very well. Perhaps that's why we don't actually ever seek to discover if we have the gift of healing, whereas many of us may well have such a gift. As the Bible tells us, we have all sorts of different gifts. 
according to the grace given to us. Romans 12, 6. Some of us are prophets, some of us are teachers, some of us have gifts of healing, some of us are gifted to help other people, some of us have gifts of administration, and some of us can speak in different kinds of tongues. We all have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Though often as not, we don't exercise the gifts that God has given us. But as a church, as a fellowship, as part of the body of Christ, there is one gift we all have and we all should exercise. And that is the gift of prayer. Jesus prayed. He went into places of solitude to find time to pray. He taught the apostles to pray. And prayer is the engine that drives the Christian life. Yet today, prayerlessness is invariably the number one sin of the busy Christian. And I believe it's because of a lack of prayer within the church that much of today's Christian work accomplishes little for the kingdom. So no matter how busy we are, we should be exposing our souls to God, that we might grow the fruit of the Spirit and be open to the gifts of the Spirit. Above all, we should be praying in detail for every member of our family. We should be praying for our neighbours, we should be praying for our church, naming names and needs. And let me tell you, there is a lot of needs. And we should be doing this because prayer works. It calms our fears, it puts things into perspective, and most importantly, it makes a difference in the lives and situations of those for whom we pray. As no human institutional problem is beyond the Lord. As with God, all things are possible. And though our prayers may not bring the outcome that we desire, our prayers will bring the outcome we need. And it will give to those for whom we pray a sense of peace and bring them closer to God. And the value of that gift is beyond price. So though we can never command miracles, we should nevertheless always expect them and pray for them. After all, faith can move mountains. Secondly, as the reading in Acts demonstrates, there's a tendency to confuse the power that heals with the healer himself. The people of Lystra witness the healing of this lame man, a man who may probably pass by in the street every day. And they confuse the power that heals with the healer themselves. And they thought that Barnabas and Paul were gods. They called Barnabas Zeus, and Paul 
whom tradition tells us, and I want you to look at that central picture there, a rather noble figure with a sword holding the scroll of wisdom. Tradition tells us that, um, where are we? I've lost the place. That Paul was an ugly little man with a bald plate and a crook nose. Quite don't, don't quite see it in that picture, really, do you? It shows artistic license that apostles must be noble figures. But of course, that's why Paul is Hermes and not Zeus. Because how could a god have beetle brows, bandy legs, and a hooked nose? A description given of St. Paul. So Barnabas and Paul, because of his healing, are mistaken as gods. And in due course, a priest of Zeus arrives, bringing garlands of flowers and bulls for a great celebratory sacrifice, in which all the town will take part and enjoy. It's almost a modern-day farce, full of mistaken identity and misunderstanding. And you think, how could this happen? But when you actually look at the background to this little vignette in the Acts of the Apostles, you begin to understand. Because 50 years earlier, the Latin poet Ovid had told the story in his book, Metamorphosis, of how Jupiter, Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, Hermes, had visited a valley near Lystra, disguised as mortals. They went from house to house, seeking lodging, but no one would take them in. Finally, they came to a house where an elderly but poor couple entertained them out of their poverty. In the morning, the gods take these, this couple up to the mountain, and when you look back down into the valley, you see the valley has flooded, drowning everywhere. And while they're looking, their poor hovel is transformed into a glorious great temple. And it's reasonable to suppose that the people of Lystra knew of this legend, and because of the miracle of this man being lifted up from the ground and suddenly becoming well, assumed that the gods had once again returned in human form. And let me tell you, they weren't going to make the same mistake twice, because they valued what they had. Today, we can also make Christ captive, captive of our presuppositions. And so we cut him down to our size, and squeeze him into a straitjacket, and we pop him into our pocket as some tame little god. So Muslims believe Jesus to be merely a prophet, and Hindus see Jesus as but one manifestation of God among many. Modern secular humanists tell us that Jesus was nothing but a great teacher and social reformer, like Mahatma Gandhi, 
Luther King Jr., even Nelson Mandela. But when we read the Bible, when we sit down and begin to think about what the gospel story tells us, we see that Jesus is more than a man, that he's more than a prophet. As neither a man nor a prophet can save us from our sins, only God can do that. God defines himself through the cross. For instead of inflicting the punishment upon us we know we deserve, God in Christ endures it for our sake, in our stead. Which is why the cross on Calvary Hill, on which the Prince of Glory died, is history's brightest hope. Yet that's also the scandal of the cross and the stumbling block of the cross because we don't want to acknowledge that we need such a sacrifice because we do not acknowledge either the seriousness of our sin or our utter indebtedness to the atoning sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Surely we say to ourselves, there must be something we can do, or at least contribute to make amends. But there's nothing. We can no more forgive ourselves than sit in our own marks. We are saved only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. As grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. It's never earned or merited. It doesn't come to us through doing or through working, but only by receiving and believing. Which is why without the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ, we are still in our sins and so estranged from God. But thanks, thanks be to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. And that, in that verse, all sums up the meaning of the cross and its impact upon each and every one of us. That is why the gospel means good news. Finally, one minute Paul and Barnabas are to be worshipped, and the next is a criminal to be slain. Because when he stops the priest of Zeus offering a sacrifice and proclaims to people of Istra, the living God who made the heavens and the earth to see it all that is in them doesn't want such sacrifices. The people of Lystra are disappointed because they thought they would have a party. And then we're told some Jews from Iconium, from Antioch and Iconium, basically began to turn the crowd against Barnabas and Paul because they had come from Antioch and Iconium and indeed had been 
drummed out of Iconium. And so Paul is stoned, and believing him to be dead, he is dragged out of town, because who wants a dead body littering the streets? But Paul survives the experience. But caked with blood and dirt, he walks back into Lystra, an act of courage, an action more powerful than a thousand sermons, because it must have been quite a spectacle. And the next day, they heard where Luke tells us there were many for Christ. They then retraced their steps, revisiting all the cities, beginning with the struck they had been thrown out of or chased out of. And in each case, they find the church prospering. He said by elders in all the little churches that have formed, as Christianity must be lived in fellowship. Which is why we can't be a Christian and not be part of a church. St. Cyprian the Martyr, who died for Christ in 258, said this No man can have God for his father unless he has the church for his mother. And John Wesley tells us No man ever went to heaven alone, he must either find friends or make them. From the very beginning, it was Paul's aim not only to make individual Christians, but also to build these individuals into a Christian fellowship. It should also be our wish that this is the case. And so we should be encouraging people to come to worship, to learn more of God and to commit themselves to the service.